This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome in to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Happy Monday, baseball fans. I'm Tim McMaster along with Ken Rosenthal. Thank you for giving us a listen on the Monday Mailbag. We're answering your questions. Uh, we'll tell you how to get involved a little bit later in for future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe. Give us a five-star rating. We always like that. Ken, how are you doing in the rain here on a Sunday? Doing well, Tim, like you. We're just kind of inside today, enjoying a little peace. Well, peace so far. Yeah, it's rainy in the Northeast. It's been rainy for weeks, it feels like, in Baltimore. We're going to get to that in a second. There are a lot of streaks going on in baseball right now. The Dodgers had won nine in a row before Sunday. The Yankees have won nine in a row. The Braves have won nine straight, but none of that can compares to what's going on with the Orioles. 18th straight loss on Sunday. It's the sixth longest streak in the modern era. The longest skid belonging to the 1961 Phillies. They lost 23 in a row. The second longest skid, though, you're very familiar with. The 1988 Orioles, they lost 21 in a row to start the season, and you were covering that team. I was, Tim. It was my second year covering baseball. I was, let's see, 25 years old, and I was still really inexperienced. I was more inexperienced to start my career than all of the young writers we have at The Athletic. Or maybe I should say they are more mature than I was as writers and reporters. I just was really green. So this was my second year, 1988. Tim Kirkchen was covering for the Baltimore Morning Sun. Richard Justice was covering for the Washington Post. And I never thought that a team would even come close to matching that 21 game streak. Now it's the longest in American league history, longest to start the season. I don't know that any team will lose 21 to start the year, but I never thought we'd see what the Orioles are doing now. A team threaten 21. And yet here we are. And let me preface this by saying that the 88 team, people will be shocked to hear this. I think that had two hall of famers, that team, Eddie Murray and Cal Ripken jr. It had a former MVP and Rookie of the Year, Fred Lynn. It had some really good other players. Terry Kennedy was a good catcher in his career. Mike Boddicker, an outstanding right-handed pitcher. Scott McGregor at the end of his career, but he had been a name guy. I could go on. Bill Ripken was on that team. He was just starting his career. He was a good player. So that team was not doing anything resembling tanking. In fact, they made a trade in mid-March of that year to get Jeff Stone and two other players that they thought, oh, this is going to thrust us forward. Jeff Stone's going to be our leadoff hitter, etc. Jeff Stone became kind of the symbol of that 0-21. He was a really nice guy, but not a good player. And he did a bunch of things wrong in that streak. So that's the difference between then and what we have now when the Orioles are hardly the only team that has taken this route, but teams do try to collect high draft picks, get the highest draft pools, highest international pools, in effect, by losing. Now, again, I'm going to say this once more because Oriole fans are listening and they're awfully sensitive about this. I can see it on Twitter. 
And they think I'm out to get their team, even though I haven't been to the Baltimore Sun in 21 years. <laughs> and I haven't lived in Baltimore in 12 years. And I was delighted to see them really good from 2012 to 16 when they were an outstanding team. And I wrote as much. So the Astros and Cubs started this. We know that this is what strategically has succeeded for some, but not others. Tigers are still waiting to have their turnaround. I know, great farm system, I get it. Mariners, 20 years without going to the playoffs, I know, great farm system, they're coming. It takes a long time for some of these teams, and some of these teams never really get there. Tanking, if you want to use that word, is perfectly within the rules. In fact, it might even be advisable under the current economic system. But it stinks. And... It stinks not just for the fans who have to pay major league prices for their tickets and, of course, for their cable systems. It stinks for the people in uniform who have to live this. The manager of that team, Brandon Hyde and his coaching staff, the players who are sent out nightly overmatched. They're overmatched. It's simple as that. So the answer going forward goes back to a story that Evan Drellick and I wrote this week. Now, we don't know exactly how this would work going forward. We're not pretending to know the details. But we do know, and what we reported, is that a minimum payroll number was proposed by Major League Baseball. Now, to get there, they're going to lower the luxury tax under this proposal, and then teams that exceed the luxury tax, the penalties, they will go to the teams making or not spending enough money so they can get to $100 million in payroll. That is at least is the essence of the proposals. We understand it. There's a zillion questions with this. I don't have all the answers, but the important aspect of that story is that the payroll minimum was introduced. So going forward, this has to happen. And other things have to happen to make sure teams compete in the best way possible. Now, I will say this also. It is not necessary to do what the Orioles and Tigers and Pirates have done. We've seen the Rays and the A's in particular, and the Indians I would throw into this category as well, compete pretty much annually, some years much better than others, without going all the way down. The A's in particular, six postseason appearances in the last nine years. They didn't do what the Orioles have done. So that to me is the message going forward. And if anything, if there's a positive in what's going on with the Orioles right now, it's going to reinforce once and for all that this system has to change. It has to change so teams cannot do this. And I know, yes, the Orioles had unbelievable disadvantages. I wrote about them about a week ago. And the disadvantages when Mike Elias took over included zero international program. They had none. They had to build up their analytics. They had a series of trades that had occurred the year before when they were dumping Machado and Gossman, all these guys, and they didn't really get much back. So Mike Elias started with a huge huge problem actually multiple problems and it's his job to fix that and it's going to take time we all know that but when you don't put a competitive team on the field that is a blight on the sport that is what's happening now and again it has to change and i'll say one more thing to oriole fans who have been very sensitive lately at least on twitter and it's not all of you of course buster olney and i we've had some tweets and some stories about them both of us worked in baltimore both of us actually had great experiences in Baltimore, and we know how passionate the town is about the team. So you can start right there. The other aspect of this is, 
I don't understand why fans are so accepting of this kind of thing when you're paying your money. And yes, I know they've got a great farm system now. And yeah, maybe by 2025, they're good. You've got to suffer through this. So if you're frustrated, I would suggest stop responding to Buster and me for that matter on Twitter and direct your frustration to the team. It's unbelievable to me. And this is not just Oriole fans. These are fans of other major league teams, fans in all sports. This trust the process stuff. Yeah, okay. But you got to suffer while you're trusting the process. And the process, by the way, does not always produce the desired results. That's it, Tim. That's me off the soapbox now. Oh, unfortunately, I have a little bit of a follow-up, so you got to get back on the soapbox. But um, I was just going to say that that it, this kind of goes with what you just said, but throughout this streak, the message from the organization, I think it's been a couple different times it's been stated, is we're on track, you know, where things are going in the direction we want them to be going, which to me, if I'm a fan, it just drives me insane. Like, how can we be on track if we're multiple years into this rebuild and this is the product that we currently have on the field. Like, get me headed in the right direction, at least, right? I mean, I feel like even if that's how you feel behind closed doors, like we're right where we want to be, it seems like the wrong message to be sending to those fans who are spending that money at the ballpark. I agree. And it gets back to the point, Tim, where a lot of times teams say things and they come off sounding Pollyannish or unduly optimistic. Look at the Mets and some of their comments during their slide. Pete Alonso would say, everything's going to be okay. And in some ways, they have nothing else that they can say. And in the Orioles' thought process, they are on track because their farm system now, in the last week or so, has been rated very highly by a number of publications. That's great. But you've got to get the players here. And as Dan Connolly pointed out in The Athletic, a very pointed and well-done article. Their pitching in the minor leagues, their level or depth of pitching prospects is not where it should be. They've got position players. They don't have as many pitchers, and you're going to need multiple, multiple, multiple pitchers to get the few that will get through. So, obviously, yes, they're going to say they're on track, and in some ways they are on track. They've collected prospects, which is the least you can do in this situation. But they have not surrounded their current major leaguers some Good ones, too. Cedric Mullins, some got promising guys like Mountcastle. They've not put even mediocre free agents around them. And this is where the result is. So, yeah, they're on track, but tell me when the track ends. It's a long track. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved in the mailbag down the road, you can. We'd love to hear your voice. Use the voicemail line. That's 646-543-7072. You can also email us if you don't want to give us a call. The email address, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. If you don't hear your question answered this week, we got a lot of good ones. So we've saved some for the future. So we may still get to your question down the road, but we got a lot of good questions to get to. And Ken, we're starting with voicemail and Wayne. Hi there, my name is Wayne. I'm calling from Vancouver. Uh, I just have a question about how, how do you think uh, MLB will deal with the issue of uh, pitchers being overworked, starting pitchers aren't going as deep into games, or maybe averaging about five innings a game, 
this of course is a huge burden on the bullpen, which is uh, becomes very evident after the maybe probably halfway point of the year. We're seeing a lot of blowouts now. Do you think MLB will increase the roster size maybe by a couple of players or so, so that each team will have maybe more bullpen? But I guess another option is: Do you think that the game will actually evolve to going to seven innings? That this would help out with uh, pitching and it would help with just the average time of games. You'd probably have it done within two and a half hours or so. Wayne, I'll answer your last question and then the others. I don't see baseball going to seven inning games. And in fact, based on what the commissioner has said in recent weeks, it sounds like they're not going to continue the seven inning double headers either beyond this year. That was uh, an adjustment made because of the COVID situation continued this year and I don't see it being part of the game's fabric going forward. And you know what? I covered the Yankees-Red Sox doubleheader, both Sanford inning games, for MLB Network last Tuesday. And it was the first doubleheader I covered in person for television. It felt really weird. It's not right. And that's not going to continue. Now, the size of the pitching staff going forward and how that's going to be handled is an interesting question. Actually, Wayne, I've heard... Theo Epstein's talked about this. It might be better to shrink the size of the pitching staff. That would force the starters to go deeper into games. It would force relievers not simply to be even three batter guys. They'd have to be multiple inning guys. It would kind of get the art of pitching back, maybe get velocity down because guys would be working more. And that's one way to attack some of the other problems that exist, right? The lack of offense and the lack of starting pitching length that, has come to permeate the game. It's not a healthy trend, in my opinion. I like going to the ballpark and knowing, man, tonight it's Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom. That's extreme. That's the best, right? But even, I don't know, let's say Marcus Stroman versus Julio Urias. That's a good matchup. I'm just bringing up some Mets-Dodgers potential matchups here. So, obviously this is a problem, keeping pitchers healthy. It's Basically, a problem that's existed for many years now. I recall when John Farrell was the Red Sox pitching coach, before he was manager, I would talk to John about pitchers staying healthy, and he would say, well, we're doing all these things now. we got pitch counts. We have different ways to measure it. I'm like, John, you do all these things. We have all these things in place, these processes, and yet nothing changes. And if anything, the problem has gotten worse since I had those conversations with John. So... I don't have an answer. No one seems to have an answer. But clearly, I will say this, Wayne, things need to change. All right. We kind of have a related question on email. It's from Pat Wagner. Um, Because of how short starting outings have been in recent years and seem to be trending, he says, do you ever foresee a time when Major League Baseball might change the rules for pitching wins For instance, a starter in the lead but is pulled before he can go five innings. A reliever comes in, gets two outs, and a win. What are your thoughts? Of course, this all goes with kill the win as well, Ken. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned that, Tim, because frankly, Pat, your question is entirely reasonable. But two things here. One, anytime baseball suggests changing anything, people go crazy. So to change pitching wins and redefine them, is what you're saying. I don't see that happening. And the reason I don't see it happening, because, of course, there are some things that need to be changed, but I don't know that pitching wins, as de-emphasized as they've been in recent years, 
need to change. I don't know that we need to def- change the definition. We have better ways, much better ways to measure the performances of pitchers than pitching wins, which are team-related, bullpen-related, not really a reflection of how that pitcher actually performed in every case. In some cases, yes. And certainly, you talk to major league pitchers today, particularly the ones, I don't know, 30 or over, it means something to them. That's how they were brought up in the game. And if you talk to a guy like Lance Lynn, he'd say, hey, I'm going seven or eight innings because I want the win. And that is a legitimate thing for those guys. And it's a legitimate thing that people should respect. But it's just not the leading measure of pitching performance anymore. All right, Ken, it seems like every week now we get a question about Shohei Otani, and this is a good thing. I'm not complaining about it. Keep those questions coming in. We love talking about this guy, but that is the next one from voicemail. Hi there. My name is Wyatt, and I'm calling to talk about Shohei Otani because who doesn't like talking about Shohei Otani? I think he's going to get paid a lot of money because of this, especially if he continues playing like this. I anticipate a $300 maybe even a... $400 plus million dollar contract. That being said, I worry that the Angels may not be able to keep him in Anaheim if he's going to have that kind of price tag because they're already committed to Rendon, they're committed to Trout. I guess I'm wondering if you think Shohei Otani will be an Angel past his fall 2023 free agency deadline. And if that is the case, what moves do you think need to be made in order to keep Shohei Otani and Anaheim. Wyatt, you're asking a lot of questions there, but they're all good ones. So let's start with where he stands contractually right now. He signed a two-year extension last February. That extension pays him $3 million this season. That's crazy, right? He's making only $3 million this season. $5.5 million next season. Then in 2023, you alluded to this, he becomes arbitration eligible one last time. That number, heaven only knows what it might be. Arbitration is based largely on precedent. Well, there's no precedent. I don't know how they'll figure it out. And more to the point, by then, there might be a new collective bargaining agreement. Now, the new collective bargaining agreement, whatever it is, and by 2023, I would hope whatever work stoppage is coming, if there is one coming, it would be over. But... Basically, that will define the terms, of course, for how teams pay players and how things look going forward. So let's just say for the sake of discussion, the luxury tax threshold increases to $230 million. Now, that has not been proposed as far as I know by Major League Baseball, certainly. I don't know if the union has asked for that or not, but let's just say for th- in theory, it goes to 230 Well, then the Angels could afford without worrying about the luxury tax, Shohei Otani, simply from that perspective. Whether they want to pay in cash $230 million for their team in a given season, that's another question. So we need to know what the thresholds are. We need to see where the game's revenues are. We need to see where the angels are. Once all that is established, then yes, they have the problem of having to pay Trout and Rendon big money going forward. But Shohei Otani is a guy who not only will cost a lot of money. He will make you a lot of money. So that perspective, that notion should not be forgotten here. And that's why he is so valuable to the Angels or to any other club. So it's really hard to peek into the future and judge where this might be going without knowing the CBA, without knowing where the Angels are on their timeline. 
All of these things are unknown. And again, this does not even become relevant until after the 2023 season. We're talking more than two years away. Yeah, and we'll see if he's still able to do both things at that point as he gets older. That's yeah, right. All sorts of questions. Even a better point. Yes. <laughs> All right, back to email. This one's from Nick. He says, it was recently released that next season there will be another game at the in Iowa in the cornfield. For me, I feel like they shouldn't have rushed going back there so soon. I feel like they could have played at another unique stadium somewhere. I feel like the Field of Dreams game should be like a one-time thing or something spaced out five to ten seasons from now. Do you think, though, that baseball has missed a big opportunity with the Cubs playing the Reds next year? instead of Cubs-Cardinals. That's a true rivalry and something that probably could have brought in more viewers to TV sets. First of all, they're going to play the game next year, and they're probably going to play the game beyond that in Iowa because that stadium costs more than $5 million to build. So you weren't building it for just one game. You were building it to not only have an annual game there, but maybe tournaments and all these kinds of things. So that's why... Ultimately, it's going to stay in place. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do some other cool things as well in other venues. Now, we've got the Williamsport game as we're speaking today on Sunday, recording this. That's going to take place. That's a really cool annual event. We've had the Fort Bragg games. There have been suggestions of going to one or two of the remaining Negro League stadiums and staging a game there. That would be kind of cool. There are all kinds of things baseball can do. And as we've seen, these big events, these event games... They're kind of popular, and people kind of like them. So I would expect them to continue. Now, as for the matchup, Cubs-Reds, my biggest concern there is what is the Cubs team going to look like based on the fact that they've kind of let everybody go. But yes, Cubs-Cardinals would have been sexier, I guess. Cubs-Reds is fine. My bigger concern with the game going forward is how do you make it as special as this year? Honestly, you can't. It's not going to be the same. There's only one chance you get at doing it the first time. And this was the first time. This was the time you will have Kevin Costner. Now, maybe the guys walk out of the cornfields next year as well, but the impact of that won't be clearly what it was this year. So that's my concern with the game going forward. How do you make it as special? How do you make it as unique? And I don't know the answer to that, but I would imagine some pretty creative people, both that, Fox and MLB can figure that out. Yeah, you can't create a walk-off home run every year. That just kind of has to happen. All right, we have another question related to the Field of Dreams game on voicemail. Hey, Ken. This is Sean from Minnesota. Every year we hear from players that spring training is too long and a break is needed midseason. The injury list seems to support this. So how about shifting the All-Star game to late March as a preseason showcase that builds excitement for the upcoming season? Then shift the Field of Dreams game with the draft to the Midsummer Classic. The weekend could focus on the love of the game and the dreams of new prospects, while also giving players a much-needed mental and physical break. Here's another fan messing with tradition. <laughs> Actually, I always love these ideas. and I only say that in jest because when writers suggest things, the fans go crazy. You guys, shut up. Stop messing with the game. Now, this idea has a good foundation in that Yes, we want players to stay healthier and maybe somehow adjust the season in some fashion to get them more rest. Now, the All-Star game in late March, I can't see that. The All-Star game, when it occurs in mid-July, is really the biggest event of the sporting calendar that 
particular week and night. It's the one night of the year when baseball kind of commands the spotlight to itself. So that would not be the case in late March with March Madness going on and NBA and NHL. And I just think that would be too harsh a break from tradition. The Field of Dreams game probably is best where it is in August when you have the dog days and this kind of livens things up. The one thing the minor leagues do is give everybody Monday off and that would be obviously a uniform off day as opposed to what we have now which is off days all over the place and I guess if you had that teams could build their rest into their work schedules for players accordingly. The other thing you could do is make a shorter schedule. Now this has been discussed but what happens when you make a shorter schedule? Well, Less money comes into the game from tickets, less money comes into the game from television, less money goes to the players, and nobody, if you follow this sport for even a little bit of time, wants to see less money. You know that following the sport. It's kind of an obvious thing. These guys want their money, and they want more money all the time. That goes for the owners, the players, everybody. So that's why the shorter schedule, which is probably the best solution to keeping players healthy, I just don't see it happening. Uh, Next question, also email, is from Alberto, who's actually in Spain. He says, my question is, what do you think the Reds will do, and this is very likely to happen, he adds, if Castellanos opts out? Will they let him test the market, and hopefully somebody like Nick Senzel can finally stay healthy and fill in? Or do you think they will pay up and pay what it takes to keep him in Cincy? I would expect if he opts out, he's going somewhere else. And that is simply the nature of free agency. If I had to bet on the other 29 teams, I'd bet on the other 29 teams over one team, which would be the Reds. The Reds signed him to a four-year, $64 million deal before the 2020 season. So remember, he had the ability to opt out last year, didn't because it was coming off the 60-game campaign and he didn't have that great a year. And then this year, he has the second chance to do it. And yes, he's going to do it. There's no question about that. He'll be walking away from a good amount of money, but he'll make a whole lot more, I would imagine, as a free agent. And the market for him sets up well. So he is entering or will be entering in free agency his age 30 season. That's the same age as Chris Bryant, who is not necessarily an outfielder or will be viewed that way in free agency. And then there's Chris Taylor, who's another multi-position guy. He's going to be entering his age 31 season. And Starling Marte, as great as he is, is going to be entering his age 33 season. So Castellanos will be one of the youngest position player outfielders out there, maybe the best, considering that Michael Conforto has had such a horrible year. He's younger than Castellanos. So he'll do well, in my opinion. He's proven it now, time and again, that he can really hit. I don't know that the Reds will want to go in that direction. Now, you ask, well, what do they do then? Well, if he leaves, his $16 million AAV is cleared. And you have the money to spend on other players. You can do this in other ways. I don't know that Senzel's the answer. He, like you said, he's hurt all the time. But they'll have at least, if nothing else, flexibility. They won't have Nick Castellanos, but they'll have flexibility. And that's a good thing if you use it well, the money. It would be great to have a day for the draft when there was no baseball being played. I feel like they could at least do that, right? That, that, that's figuring out like one Monday. To have no teams Tim, playing. And that is have the, the most draft. obvious thing draft. going. I, I totally agree with you. I don't know why this year it was squeezed into the weekend before the All-Star game. Oh, we're going to get it more attention. No, you didn't get it more attention. That didn't work. 
So, yes, the day of the draft should be a day when there's no baseball going on. The Field of Dreams game should be a day when there's no other baseball going on. There are ways to amplify these events that are not taking place right now. Yeah, absolutely. At least the, the one thing they did was open up the time slot for the Field of Dreams game. But still, there's there's other games going on, and, and it definitely could be handled differently. All right, back to email. This one's from Quentin. He says, will we see in the future games being postponed or moved to different cities when wildfire smoke is bad? I was surprised last year to see the game being played in Seattle when things were really bad. Obviously, Ken, this is, a, this is an unfortunate question, but it is a good one, I think. It is a good one. And going back to last year, I had to look this up, Quentin. They did move two of the games. Seattle and San Francisco had a series moved from Seattle to San Francisco because the smoke in Seattle was so thick and unplayable for the players. What had happened was it had gotten to the point where they didn't really react as quickly as maybe they should have. And if you remember Jesus Lazardo then with the A's saying, hey, I'm a healthy 22-year-old. I shouldn't be gasping for air or missing oxygen when I'm playing. They played a couple of games under those conditions. Now, baseball does not have a set air quality index. There's not a uniform thing that the sport looks to. But what they do is they have teams consult with their local health departments and determine it for themselves. So the Mariners in that case were consulting with their local health department for whatever reason that one night, I think there was a double header with the A's and the Mariners. They decided to play. Then they took a better course of action and shifted the games after that, or two of the games. So that's how it works. It's a locally decided thing, not uh, an MLB central thing. That might change in the future. Probably should change in the future, actually. But to this point, it hasn't been that great an issue. All right, we have one more voicemail and then an email after that, but here's the voicemail. This one came in a couple of weeks ago. We saved it because it's still relevant here coming up. Tim and Ken, this is Noah Castro calling back in again from up north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My question is, hearing your segment about the Topps Project 70 and the baseball cards, wanted to ask a little bit of a different question, and that is Roberto Clemente. Roberto Clemente date's coming up in about a month, and I don't think most of Major League Baseball, unless you're from Pittsburgh, know that that day's coming. Why doesn't it have as much prominence and significance as Jackie Robinson Day, as Lou Gehrig Day? And what do you think about trying to get 21 retired across all of Major League Baseball just the same way that 42 is retired? I know I might sound like a homer, but I think that Clemente did a lot for Major League Baseball and a lot for the Latin community and his humanitarian efforts should be honored even more than just the award in its day. No, I hear you. And it's a really interesting point that you bring up. And I'll give you my thoughts and I'm not saying they're necessarily the right thoughts because this is a personal thing for a lot of people and people are going to have different opinions. First of all, Roberto Clemente is honored in unique ways by the game, not just with his day, which, by the way, has been around a lot longer than Lou Gehrig Day, which just started this year. It's much more prominent than Lou Gehrig Day. It happens every September. Last year, all Puerto Rican players, players born in Puerto Rico, were allowed to wear number 21. The entire Pirates team wore number 21. And even Brent Suter, who was the Brewers' Clanton nominee for the award, he wore number 21. Now, that's not everybody. I get that. And 
I would not be opposed to seeing everybody wear 21 on that day. I know that's the one thing that they do for Jackie Robinson that's separate. But that aspect of it, okay, I could live with that. When you talk about Clemente versus Jackie, and I hate making these comparisons because they're both so unique figures or such unique figures in our game, and both are so important to the fabric of the sport and so meaningful in what they accomplished in different ways. Jackie Robinson was a critical figure, not just in baseball history, but in American history. That is why he is honored in a separate fashion with the players all wearing his number. And that is why he is distinct. It's different. Clemente, huge role, but not a guy that necessarily changed the way the civil rights movement initiated. It's a whole different kind of thing you're talking about here. So, could they go to 21 for everybody? Could they retire 21? They could. I would imagine baseball wants to keep Jackie at a higher level. And again, this is not in any way to dismiss what Clemente means to the Latin American players, to the sport in general. He's a huge figure in the sports history. But the one thing that we have for Clemente that we don't have for any other player is the award. And what is the award? It's given to the player who best represents the game through sportsmanship, community involvement, and positive contributions on and off the field. The players consider this the highest honor in the game, higher than MVP, higher than Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, anything you can imagine. This is a singular award, and it goes to the one guy who in this particular year, any particular year, stands out because of who he is as a person. So that's an honor that cannot be matched. It's an appropriate honor given what Roberto Clemente did in his life and who he was as a person, a great humanitarian. And I basically think the way it is now is fine. Let the guys who want to wear 21, and you can extend it beyond Puerto Rican players and players on the Pirates. You can let whoever wants to wear 21 wear it. I don't know that you need to make it mandatory. I wouldn't be opposed to it. It's not the worst thing in the world, but... Jackie, and again, it's a really difficult thing to say and to distinguish between guys of this caliber, but Jackie, it's a different level. It's just different. And one of the coolest things about that award is that every team actually nominates their player for it. So you get all these nominees and then the eventual overall winner. It's just, it's a cool honor to win for sure. All right, one last question, Ken. This one is Hall of Fame related. It's been a while. This one from Dan Z. He's in Ohio. He says, uh, I do understand why all Hall of Famers are not first ballot, but do you think there's too much emphasis on being unanimous? Out of all the obvious first ballers in the Hall, I find it absurd that only one player has gotten 100%. Dan, that one player is Mariano Rivera, and I am with you entirely. The focus on unanimous elections is absurd, and I don't care nor do any of the players care if they're at 98% or 97.1% or 99.6%. It's cool Mariano is the one guy who was unanimous simply because of who he was as a person as well as a player. But I would be willing to bet Derek Jeter doesn't care how many votes he got. Cal Ripken doesn't care. None of the guys who were at that high, exalted, 95% and above level care that they weren't unanimous. And what makes this Worse, in my view, is when you have a guy at that level and then let's say there are four voters who 
choose not to vote for that person for whatever reason. And then the witch hunt begins. Who are those people? Who didn't vote for this guy? And it's just silly. If you have a voting body of 400 people, chances are one or two or three or four might have their reasons one way or the other for not voting for an obvious Hall of Famer. I don't like it. I think it's dumb that guys and women who vote would do that. But it does happen. So basically, long story short, what I'm saying is that all of the uproar we hear all the time about unanimous selections, it's tired. No more. Yeah, let's just enjoy the Hall of Fame for the good stuff. All right, if you want to get involved next week, it's easy. You can call the hotline, 646-543-7072. You can also email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Between now and then, Ken, what games are you covering? Well, I've got Cleveland and the Red Sox in Cleveland coming up on Saturday, and then I'm headed to San Francisco for the Brewers and Giants, which will be a Tuesday broadcast, a rare Tuesday broadcast for Fox So I'm looking forward to that. I have not seen the Giants in person all year. Actually, I have not seen the Brewers in person all year either. So those have been two of the best teams in baseball, and that will be fun, as will Cleveland and the Red Sox, where the Red Sox, of course, are trying to turn it around, and the Indians are trying to point toward the future. All right, and it's a great week here on the Athletic Baseball Show. Of course, we're coming at you on Monday, but tune in on Tuesday. Joey Votto is going to join Jason Stark and Doug Glanville on Starkville. That should be good. Just got his 2,000th hit. He had that great home run stretch as well. A good season, and he is always fun to listen to, has great thoughts about the game. Then Thursday, it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby. Friday, Derek Van Riper and Keith Law keep you covered. Uh, If you want to read all those great writers, along with Ken, of course, you can subscribe to The Athletic and you could save 33% off an annual subscription. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show for that. For Ken Rosenthal, I'm Tim McMaster. Have a great week, everyone.